Welcome back to Gold Shields, everybody. This is your host, Tom Smith, along with my partner in crime, Dan Murphy. And today we got a great guest, a very special guest to us, uh, and Aaron Slater, who is the CEO and founder of Relentless Defender, a great organization totally dedicated to the support of law enforcement in this country. And we're honored to have him here. And just before we get to Aaron, I just want to let everybody know about our great partners, relationships we have with these numerous companies who we're very humbled to be part of, such as Relentless Defender, Irish Angel, Laidlaw Blue, The Wounded Blue, and a host of others that we're just very, very thankful for their participation in the show. And uh, one other thing, we can't wait for this weekend that we're down at Police Week down in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of friends of ours that we've made throughout the show and just others that we've known for years that we can't wait to see down there in support of the men and women in blue. And we're all down there for the same reason, to bring attention to the dedication that these men and women put out every day and never ask for anything in return. And uh, we can't wait to be there. So without any more hesitation, we're going to get to our very special guest in Aaron Slater. Aaron, how you doing, buddy? Good, great. How you doing? All right. We're doing great. Uh, Aaron, listen, we're going to get right to it, buddy. We're not going not gonna to goof around with it. Uh, your organization out there is just one of those special ones that understand what's going on, understand what's needed in support of law enforcement these days because, A, you lived it. And I want to go through your your very impressive career. You know, I was writing my notes down and actually got tired writing all your accomplishments down. <laughs> I, I was running out of paper. So uh, let's get into the the kind of the career, uh, law enforcement career of you first, and then we'll get into Relentless Defender and how it became what it is today. So, Aaron, tell us about the early days of your career. Uh Really, it's like everybody else's career that, that started law enforcement. Um, I, I started out, I uh, went to the academy in 97. I was 20 years old. Uh, when I graduated, I was 21. And um, I can tell you that, like, like like most cops that are doing this for the right reason, uh, what we wanted to do and what I wanted to do was just help change the world and help make the world a better place. And and uh, so started out uh, patrolman. And uh, ultimately, uh, had a, a very fulfilling career from that point. But, uh, but that's where I started. And you did some. Uh, you were in SWAT, patrol, field training, criminal investigations, and you were actually some did some undercover work in narcotics. Which Dan and I were both in narcotics and, and dealt with undercovers, and uh, both of us both agreed that we wouldn't do it <laughs> because of what it entails. Uh, and we had some incredible undercovers. And that takes a special person to do that. Uh, any any interesting undercover cases? Those are always the most interesting ones. Like, you know, you do criminal investigations. You do the field training. Those are those stories come and go. But the, the undercover narcotics operations are always the special ones that people just sit back and, and can't believe that, that cops go through that. So... Any any tough situations you ran into then? Yeah, I did. Uh, I, d- I did undercover for four years as a as a TFO uh, task force officer uh, for a HIDA task force. So we worked on mid level and street level dope. And uh, so ultimately, 
the interesting part of that is is uh, if people would think that when you're dealing with say the cartel aspect of it, which is the, the upper level, uh, that that's probably more dangerous. But in all reality, the street level and the mid level is is where uh, you get a little bit of desperation sometimes uh, with, with the criminal element. So it, it gets a little dangerous. Uh, and then I did two two years as a sergeant uh, supervising the narcotic squad. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 ultimately, um, I've got tons of stories when it comes down to narcotics. It was probably the most fun time that I had in my career, uh, the, the six years that I was in narcotics. Um, uh, but we worked on what they call DTOs, which are drug trafficking organizations and, uh, two specific ones that, that I worked on and I was the case agent over was a, uh, primarily the one that I, I would refer to the most as far as interesting was I worked a Mexican mafia, uh, DTO drug trafficking organization. And uh, it, it involved, it started out, um, where it even landed on my desk to even start investigating it is there was a, uh, a brother, um, who ultimately, uh, owed money him to the Mexican mafia. And, they had set up operations here where I'm at just outside of Houston. And they also had an operation in San Antonio and an operation up in Dallas. Well, uh, these two brothers, they were essentially in the business together working with them. And, uh, one of the brothers ripped off the Mexican mafia. <laughs> well, it's not something that you really want to do. That's not a good, that's not a good career plan. It's not. And uh, so they ordered a hit on the, on the whole, the, the team, the brother team. Well, the brother that didn't do the rip um, essentially pleaded with the ranks of Mexican mafia and said, hey, I, this wasn't about me. This is my brother that did this. And they said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You have to kill your own brother. Oh. And, uh, and then you know, your debts will be forgiven. And so ultimately, um, what ended up happening was they sent a team up to Dallas, a criminal team, uh, up to Dallas and they knock on the door of the brother. He wasn't home. There was a 13 year old that answered the door. Um, this three person team uh, invaded the house and they ended up stabbing the 13-year-old to death. They stabbed um, the wife of the brother to death. Uh, prior to stabbing her, uh, they went and got cellophane, uh, and they raped her prison style, and um, they raped the 13-year-old prison style. And, uh, and then there was another 17-year-old that they ended up stabbing and she acted like she was dead just so they would stop raping her and stabbing her. And then they ultimately took a, a, a gas can, lit the trailer on fire and, um, left. Uh, and, and the 17 year old ended up crawling out. Neighbor saw her house on fire. She ended up surviving. And of course the, the, the other two inside end up dying. And then about a week later, uh, the brother who wasn't at home at the time comes back down to Houston. And of course, not knowing anything that his brother had done this and his brother had set this up. Uh, the brother, which his name was Chris, ends up going out to a field saying that he is 
stranded and asked his brother to come pick him up. Well, it was him and these other two guys that had helped do the hit up in Dallas. Well, he, his brother comes out at two o'clock in the morning and or so, and uh, he, he gets in the car. Right before he leaves, it's his brother and his other daughter, which is, I believe, it's 17 or 18 years old at that time. And sure enough, um, they reach up. The, the, the brother's driving. The brother comes up, stabs him in the neck, ends up killing him, stabs the, the sister in the neck. The three guys that were in the back seat, they get out, they get back in the car that they said were was stranded, and then they, they end up leaving. Uh, both of them were dead. And then that's kind of where uh, my investigation started, and it just expanded from there to a very large DTO. Uh, but ultimately, um, I can tell you, and, and, and you've done this business for a long time too, there's not very many people that I have ever investigated um, or even interviewed to where you had any kind of hesitation or fear. Um, because we just know that this business, there's going to be bad guys, but uh, you also know that 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 would be the last thing you'd want to do is to. And, and I don't know if I can cuss on your uh, on, on your podcast. No, you. Oh, it's okay. We get it. Uh, but 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 most of these guys, uh, the last thing they would want to do is is and you have that mentality of I'm the last person you want to fuck with because I promise you that 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 it'll be taken care of. Well, the um, I ended up doing a, what we call a, a roadkill on this, on um, the, the target just to put a tracker on his car. And so I took that opportunity to um, pull him into an interview room um, because it wasn't a secret. We were already doing all types of uh, surveillance on him and, and obvious investigations on him. So when I sat with him, I sat across the table from him or sat across the interview table from him. And I simply just was very bold with him. And uh, I just said, hey, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm going to put you in prison. And he just sat there with his arms crossed, uh, feet out, cocky. And he literally said, no, you're not. And I said, no, I promise you, I'm, I'm going to put you in fucking prison. And cold as day. He says, your daughter, and he named the, the elementary school that my daughter went to at the time. And then he says, and, my, and he named my ex-wife by name, told me where she works. And he just left it at that. And so it was one of those deals where I just kind of stopped for a second. And I'll be honest with you. If there was ever a time that I wanted to look around a room and sit there and say, I could kill this son of a bitch right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just grabbed him by the by the shoulder and picked him up and ultimately pushed him out of the room. And I said, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, dude. Now it's a whole different story. I'm going to fuck your world. So I ended up, uh, and it was just a minor offense that we pulled him over for and, and arrested him for just so he could track his car. But uh, ended up getting out and the investigation continued. Uh, but ultimately he did go to prison. Um we had information. It was an informant that, that worked with the MA, but ultimately set the entire thing up. And he only ended up doing 30 years because we never were able to pin the homicide on him. We were able to pin the dope on him. Wow. Uh, 
Listen, in, in all the times that, that Dan and I have done this show and just conversations we've had with people, I have never heard it go that far before with with a case with a drug dealer. Now, listen, we all know every other crime surrounds narcotics. Narcotics is the central reason for just a multitude of crimes. And the cartels are a different level than the street guys. That's a business. And they, they treat it as such, as you just stated. But for them to have the intel on your family is chilling. I mean, literally, I'm, I, I just sat here, listened to that story and got a chill. Because all of us who've been in that situation with dealing with, with major drug dealers, be it street, you know, street level guys, Danny and I both worked our separate cases, but with the DEA and got into some heavy cases with, with multiple kilos of cocaine seizures and arrests. So I can very easily put myself in your shoes with sitting there and hearing that. And I'll give you credit, brother. I don't know. And I'm being honest. I have no idea what I would do, uh, how I would react, whether it was something that <laughs> that we're both thinking of or handle it the way you did, which was that took a lot. Uh, that's a lot of discipline. Aaron, uh, for you to do that and, and a credit to you because listen, no matter what is stated from bad guys, whether it's a threat, whether anything, you never want to give the impression they got you, no matter what they say. You never want to give them that upper hand of you feeling like, oh crap, they got something on me. And you handled that probably as, as perfect as someone could. Uh, and then the ultimate prize they're in jail for 30 years you know you wanted more because the homicides but at least he's he's making he's probably making some tough decisions in prison for the next 30 years of of what he wants to become or who's going to force him to become something so that's always in the back of your mind too but wow that is an insane story man yeah it, it it really was and there's a lot of detail to it because i worked on that case for about a year and a half two years total um but it was and, 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 and you've worked in this business and there's just certain, certain cases in our lives that just consumes you and you live it, breathe it, talk it, everything. I mean, you wake up thinking about it, you go to sleep thinking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the good thing about that uh, for the criminal, I mean, the bad thing about that for the criminal element is, um, lack of a better term, we're relentless. So <laughs> we stop and, 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 uh, we will do it. And I used to tell people all the time when they, I'd, I'd see them and maybe I'd already had a warrant on them or did a buy walk on them and, uh, and, and already knew that they were nailed. And I'd sit there and tell them, Hey, you don't know, going to put you in, in, in prison and, and I'm not selling dope anymore. Okay. I'll prove to you in the next 30 days that I'm going to put you in prison. We already had the warrant. And then, so you kind of already planned their lives out for them. So, but that was always an interesting thing. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed narcotics. Um, it was a great time. It was the most dangerous job that I've ever done in law enforcement. Uh, people always sit there and say SWAT team is the most dangerous. SWAT team is probably one of the safest jobs that you could right. possibly do, to be honest with you, because we control the environment. We, 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 we have gear and, and, and things that we wouldn't normally have um, in, in, the, in the business. Um, but narcotics, they don't even know you're a cop at most of the time. And um, they'll kill crooks so or they'll kill you. Um, so ultimately it's a very, very dangerous job, but it is, it is a young man's game. I do believe. Um, right. And, uh, but ultimately it was, it was a great time. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, – I say it all the time too. Uh, in my career, narcotics was probably the most fun I had. Uh, it, was the, it was the tightest team that I ever worked with. You know, the team I had narcotics, we were very fortunate. We all were on the same page. We did a lot of good, you know, big, big cases. Uh, we did very little buy and bust. And the buy and bust that we would do would just add to the case. You know, we, we would target certain people when we were doing B&B, but ultimately because of a large scale case. And that was, that was the most fun I had. Like you said, you're doing your own thing. You're kind of setting your own pace with who you want to go after and how you want to do it. Uh, that was, you know, between the search warrants and the type of cases that we did, search warrants were still the best. You know, I, I'll explain search warrants to people and they think I'm out of my mind when I say it was fun. <laughs> you know, they don't get it. Uh, you know, and, and fortunately back in, you know, younger days, I was the Ram guy, you know, so that made it even more fun for me, uh, you know, hitting the door and everyone kind of waiting on you, which was, you know, and I always had, I always had the running bet with my team, you know, usually after a search warrant and you were done, you know, someone would make the food run and you, you know, and my bet to them was always, if I got the door in one hit, I didn't pay for di- for lunch. <laughs> they all they all paid for me, so I had an incentive every search warrant that we did. Uh, That's a good bet. So that was that was uh, that was a good time. But uh, what I, I'm still taken back by your story, and and God bless you, and I'm glad everything turned out in the end. Uh, so let me move forward a little bit. Uh, so you go from running around and doing narcotics. Now you become a supervisor. I do. In, in certain places that you are, does your, how do you, how do you bring that desire and focus of the mission of, of law enforcement uh, to the supervisory role? Do you just, do you kind of pass on what you like doing to your team? Do they, you know, were you one of those, Hey, I'm out in front kind of guys, which I'm sure you are uh, as a supervisor. Yeah. The, the, uh, I became a supervisor pretty young. So uh, I became a sergeant at right at 28 years old. And um, so uh, from there, at 28, no cop wants to sit behind a desk and no cop wants to just delegate. Uh, you still want to be out there. You still want to have hands on and you still want to lead by example. And, 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 and that was something that, that uh, I didn't want to give up. Um, but uh, the, the supervisor aspect, I was a sergeant for – two years and then I became a lieutenant. Uh, but ultimately the, the, uh, the, there's an, and there's a distinct difference between being a sergeant and being a lieutenant. Um, but, uh, being a sergeant, honestly, it's to me a, a good sergeant. Um, it's very difficult to tell the difference between a good, uh, being a sergeant and an officer when you're out on the street with the exception of the, the, the rank that you wear. Um, because a good sergeant is going to be a mentor. A good sergeant is going to be a, a servant to his people. And um, ultimately, he, he's going to be the first to, to sacrifice himself uh, in protection of his people. So it's just it's one of those things where it, it didn't really change a whole lot, with the exception of uh, the responsibility that, that that I end up having to take on. That's cool, and th- and that was Danny too. Danny, you know, I always goofed around with Danny that he was he was a detective. He just happened to be a sergeant. Yeah, uh, exactly. you know that that's exactly how he was. That's how he ran the teams when I worked for him in the gang unit and in JTTF. You know, he was just like like you just explained out in front. Follow me. 
if, if I'm not going to tell, you know, a good supervisor, I'm not going to tell someone to do something I should be doing. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. And, and those are the best ones. Those are the best ones around. And we've all run into the opposite of that. I'm sure in both our careers. Yeah. So you can appreciate even more, uh, the, the out in front supervisors, which, uh, we all appreciate. So when did you, how long, how long were you on the job, by the way? 22 years total. Okay. All right. And then, you know, I, I just told you before we went on the air for all our listeners, I started to run out of paper when I was writing my notes about the degrees that you have <laughs> and, and what you did with, with your leadership and management, uh, roles with your numerous degrees that you have, which is again, a credit to you because listen, you look at your career and and knowing you the way I do, you know that we met a, a little while ago. But reading about you and, and having conversations with you, you seem to be not satisfied being a certain way. You want to be better. You want to just keep improving yourself, and that shows by if you just look at your resume and you look at the degrees that you did with leadership. You know when you when you go to school to learn how to be a better leader, that's a testament to yourself. And to you, and you did that on numerous uh, with numerous degrees that you have, and and that's pretty cool. Uh, so, w- was that just a decision you made, or was it necessary to have the degrees uh, with your supervisory roles in the in the job? Well, it, it it's kind of not an easy, simple answer to answer, to be honest with you. The uh, and, and I'll start out by by telling you that uh, I shouldn't have ever been a cop to begin with. Um, the the uh, I've been living on my own since I was 16 years old. Um, I was, I got into trouble as a teen. And, um, so ultimately, um, I wasn't what you would typically say was cop material. Um, if, if I didn't become a cop, I honestly, I, I probably would have ended up in the system somehow. The, um, so, uh, I, I'm also a high school dropout. Um, so I dropped out of high school and uh, started working. Um, I had my daughter, um, my first my first child when I was 18 years old, and uh, just started trying to survive life. And ultimately, it really goes back, and my whole story kind of goes back to when I was uh, about almost 17 years old, and I was living at my friend's house with his parents, and. I wasn't a big fan of cops, um, to say the least. And one day somebody knocked on the door and, um, my friend's mother walks in, she goes Slater. And I always went by Slater, by the way, even though I was, even when I was a kid, I went by Slater. Yep. <laughs> um, she goes Slater, there's a cop at the door. who wants to talk to you. And so I was, of course I was like, okay, well let me figure out all the things I, I, I did. And, Lied to this man. <laughs> so I answer the door and there's a cop standing there and uh, he has his back to me. So I, I said, yes, sir. And he turns around and I recognized him to be a cop that lived down the street from where my mom lived and where I grew up. And his name was Hal. His first name was Hal, his first name was Hal but his name was Hal Clarida. And I couldn't pronounce his name at that time because I didn't care. But I remembered his name because he would stop every now and then and talk to us when we were youngsters playing football in the street or baseball in the street, that type of stuff. 
And he just simply asked, he goes, he, he says, uh, how are you doing? And I said, I'm okay. He goes, I know that you got living at your mom's house and she didn't send me over here. But uh, I just want you to know that if you ever need anything, um, reach out to me. And I said, okay. And that's all he said. And he turns around and he starts walking away and he goes, turns around and he, and he looks at me and goes, do you even know my name? And I tried to pronounce it. He goes, I try, try to pronounce Officer Clarity, Clarity, and I'm trying to explain it. And he goes, no, it's just how. It's just how. Call the police department and ask for me because back then we didn't have cell phones. Call the police department, ask for me, and uh, just let them know what you need. I said, okay. So life goes on, and, and I'm sure you and every one of your listeners has all been through those serious um, at, at a loss moments in life where you're sitting there saying, man, the whole world's coming down on me. I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know who to talk to. And you just feel alone. Um, you know, I was 17 years old, 18 years old, um, you know, either about to have a baby and, or had a baby and, uh, uh just trying to survive high school dropout, just working paycheck to paycheck and not making any means meet. And, uh, I didn't want to go home that day. I was driving around and I just kind of decided, you know what? I'm going to drive by my mom's house because maybe she'll be out checking the mail or doing the lawn or something along those lines. And cause I just had nobody else to talk to. And when I was driving by her house, she wasn't out there. And I just had too much pride to walk up to the door and say, Hey, I, I just need someone to talk to. Um, and so I kept driving. I remember of course, like I explained how I lived down at the end of her block and he was outside he was, um, cooking on the grill in his front, um, patio by his, uh, garage. And I remember driving by and he turns and looks and I remember I looked over at him too, but then I kind of tried to ignore the fact that, that I was driving by and I went around the block. I got about halfway down the block and I just stopped for a second. I said, fuck it. Why not? I have nobody else right now. So I remember making, pulling in the driveway, come back around and I pulled up in front of his house. And when I pulled up in front of his house, he was already kind of standing uh, halfway down his driveway. And I just remember, just remember him kind of standing like he almost knew that I was going to come back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I parked my truck there and uh, he kind of waves to me like, come on. So I get out of the truck. And I walk up reluctantly and he pulls out a lawn chair and he puts it down. He'll sit down. So I, I do, I sit down and he's cooking hamburgers and he just asks, you know, how you like your hamburgers? And I said, I guess cook shit. <laughs> and uh, so I just sat there and I just remember him just talking and he was just, you know, those type of people in life where no matter how bad a day you're having, they, their, their attitude and their personality just perks you up because they're, it just seems like nothing in the world could go wrong with that person. And they're so, oh, yeah. so happy and that type of thing. And, and just being around the man just made me feel like, you know, life can't be that bad. I mean, mm -hmm. look how this guy is, look how he's acting, those types of things. So I just sat there for about two and a half hours. And honestly, I probably only said about two or three sentences and the whole other time he was just talking and he was talking about war stories and he was talking about police work and he was talking about all these different things and uh, so at about 
you know, call it two and a half hours later. I, uh, I said, Hey, I, you know, thank you for, 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 you know, the food, that type of stuff. And he goes, Hey, if you ever need anything, man, you know where I'm at again, I appreciate you coming by. I think, I think I got more out of this than, than you did. And I'm like, you have no idea. So I got my truck and I left. Couldn't stay much longer. I was married to a Hispanic woman if, and I didn't have an answer and trying to explain I was hanging out with a cop just never would have been the thought. So I just didn't want to right. dab when I got home. And uh, so I, uh, I would go over there and I'd visit him about once every two or three months and about the same thing. I would just like listening to him and listen to, to, to his stories and listening to, you know, the different things. And of course it warmed up and, and, you know, he was, became kind of a mentor, uh, explaining life and, and going through some of this stuff. Well, I know that, uh, there was a time and it was probably about right when I was about 20 years old. He says, uh, Slater, what do you want to do with your life? And I sat there for a second and I said, I don't know. Cause nobody ever really asked me that. And I never really thought about it. I was just trying to live day for day and just trying to get through life. I said, you know what? I don't know. He said, why don't you become a cop? And I said, Hal, I can't become a cop. You already know I got in trouble. And he goes, this is when you were a juvenile. And I said, seriously? He goes, yeah, that was juvenile shit. He goes, Dude, would you want to be a cop? I said, I don't know. I don't I don't think I would. He goes, well, you, you, you come here all the time. You like listen to my stories. You like, you know, hearing the war stories and that type of stuff. And you interact with them. It seems like you really enjoy it. I said, you don't get it. It's not the war stories. It's not the idea of being a cop that that uh, excites me and just makes me have energy. I just think it's cool to watch you and, and, and see how happy it makes you. And he asked a profound question. He said, well, don't you think you could have that? Don't you think you could have that same enjoyment, that understanding, that, 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 that satisfaction, that selfless feeling? And I thought about it. I said, you know what? You're right. So how do I do it? And here in Texas, you got to go to an academy uh, and then apply for jobs. It's, oh, it's okay. kind of weird. Uh, and, and you actually pay for for the academy before. It's kind of like a college class. And um, so I asked him, and he goes, I'll show you how to do it. Um, we go down to the, the college. We go do all this. And I said, okay, yeah. So we go down there. We register, or, or we get the information to register. And, uh, and so back then, um, the, the class was about, um, uh, call it about $2,800 for the entire semester. Well, with that being said, $2,800, it could have been $2.8 million. I had no money to my name. So the idea of, of getting a, uh, Start even starting this deal was impossible. So, I um, I, I immediately I said, "Well, that's that's not going to happen, right?" Well, for the first time in a long time, I end up calling my dad, and I asked my dad, and, and here, the conversation was very clear. I, I called him up. I said, "Dad," he goes, "Aaron," I said, "Yeah," 
He goes, okay, well, what can I do you for? I said, well, Dad, I think I know what I want to do in life, and uh, I need your help, and, and I can ask. And I can tell you that if, if you help me, I'll pay you back as soon as I get a, a job. He goes, okay, what do you want to do? I said, Dad, I, I want to be a police officer, and I was going to see if you could help me you know, pay for the academy. And he says, and it was quiet for a second. And to give you an understanding, my dad has a master's degree in geology. Uh, he used to be an executive for Exxon Minerals. Um, growing up, I traveled all over the nation, and then I even lived in Madrid, Spain. So I can tell you that, that his idea of money and wealth is more important sometimes than what you do in life for others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he was always an absent father, and I, I'd lived with a single mother and four boys. And uh, his response was, was interesting because I just remember being on the phone and it was quiet for a second. And his only response was, son, why the fuck would you want to be a minimum wage trash man for the U S government? Mm-hmm. And I sat for a second and I got so fucking infuriated. Not because um, he was saying that about cops, because in many ways, I was like, okay, I get it, okay? But more so that I related that, that he was talking about the only father pig that had taken the time to help. So my response was, fuck you, Dad, and hung up the phone. So I moved on uh, about two weeks later, and, and I'd already put it out of my head. I said, well, that's not going to happen. There's no way I'll be able to become a cop. So move forward. About two weeks later, I'm driving, and uh, I see how he turns around, pulls me over, and walks up to the car. And I had somebody else uh, sitting in the car uh, with me. And, and he goes, he's, he comes in, he goes, hey, uh, I thought we had a deal. And I said, it's not going to happen. He goes, yeah, why not? And I said, it's just not going to happen. Leave it alone. I'm, I, it's just, it's not going to happen. He goes, when I get off work, I want you to come by my house. And I said, okay. So I do, um, went over to his house about six. But this time it was a little different. He didn't have a grill out. He didn't have anything. He just had two lawn chairs sitting in his front patio. And I get there and he said, he said, sit down. So I sit down. And he says, uh, what's going on? So it was, right then and there, I just kind of, being a 20-year-old kid, just broke down and started crying. And... I was just like, it's not going to happen. I kind of explained what happened and that type of stuff. And he goes, okay. And he just listened to me. And I was embarrassed as hell because I never cried in front of a man before. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in my household, it was a sign of weakness to cry. And my family was never really a loving, hugging type of family. So ultimately... That conversation probably lasted about 15 minutes. 
he gets up and he walks inside his house and he's in there for about 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes or so. And of course, within that time, I'm regaining my composure and stuff and thinking to myself, man, I'm an idiot. What the fuck am I thinking here? So then he comes back out, but his wife is with him this time and sits down. His wife sits on his lap and, uh, he looks at me and goes, Hey, talk to Lauren and we're going to pay for your Academy. And of course, right then and there, I just start bawling. <laughs> and, and it was even more embarrassing because I never cried in front of a strange woman before a stranger woman, I should say. And so I'm, I'm keeping my head down. I'm crying. She reaches over and she kisses me on the forehead and she says, you know, we love you. So she goes back inside and I'm just sitting there. I got my head down and I'm bawling, crying. And, uh, he, he, he leans down and he says, look at me. And before he's always very nice and kind of a gentle type of man. But when he said, look at me, it was not so gentle. It was a very stern, um, authoritative look at me. Right. So I wipe tears off. I look up and he goes, do you want this? I said, you have no idea. Uh, absolutely. I want this. He goes, let me tell you something about life. He said in life, there's going to be obstacles no matter what you do. And it's usually the ones that it was usually the thing that is the most important, the most powerful thing that you're going to accomplish is going to have the most obstacles. He goes, but I need you to understand this, that with those obstacles, you go over them, around them, under them, or right through them. But you be fucking relentless in everything that you do. I said, yes, sir. I said, listen, I will pay you back. I promise I'll pay you back every penny when I get a job. He goes, no, absolutely not. He goes, you know what I want you to do for me? I said, what's that? He said, I just want you to make it great. Whatever you do, take this and your payment back to me is making it great. I said, I will definitely do that. I promise you that. So I went to the academy and um, uh, graduated academy, of course. And he ended up giving, he was a sergeant at that. It was a small local agency, very small local agency. And he had offered me a job. And uh, there's no way I could turn down a job from the man that did all this. So I started with that agency. But it just wasn't the agency that I wanted to to work for because it was one of those agencies that is really small, didn't have a whole lot going on. It was more of a wave and um, uh, do nothing type of agency. And so ultimately I ended up leaving that agency and I went to the agency that I did my career at about 13 months after starting the law enforcement. And uh, one night about, about two years on the job, a little over two years on the job, back in 2021, 
I got a phone call at early in the morning, uh, about 7.30 in the morning. And it was from my old agency. And I said, hey, a house on a traffic accident got hit by a car. I said, is he okay? Uh, no, they life flighted him to downtown Houston. I said, okay. Well, I remember getting in the car and hauling ass down there. Uh, getting to the, the, the hospital. And even knowing that, that he was in the hospital and it wasn't looking good. Something I'd witnessed that I'd never seen in my entire life. When I walked in, and we all know hospital hallways are wide and long. Waiting rooms are big. When I walked in, and I'd got there really quick, it was filled shoulder to shoulder with cops. Mm-hmm. And these are cops from all over the Houston region. You know, different uniforms, different you know, agencies, of course, different people. And for a second, it just kind of overwhelmed me. And I sat there and thought for a second, I'm like, y'all don't even know this man. Mm-hmm. But y'all are here. And even though that I was there for that purpose, something else kicked in and I thought to myself, and, and remember I told you, oh, I didn't have a really strong family unit or a loving family unit. And I thought to myself, this this is what fucking family is. So, um, the chief calls me over, his chief, my former chief, and he says, Sater, come here. So I go over there and uh, he explained what happened. Uh, he got hit, internal bleeding, um, organs were major issues with organs and all kinds of different stuff. So he sat in the hospital for a little while. Um, he didn't pass. And so I'd go up there on a regular basis and visit with him because he was in the hospital for a while. And then, of course, he got released and went home. Um, but he was he was done. His career was done initially. I mean, ultimately. And uh, he, he was essentially bed rest and those types of things for the most part. And I'd go over there and, and visit him. And, of course... I'd say, hey, I'm about to go make hamburgers. How do you like them? He goes, God damn it, cooked, right? And so I'd go make hamburgers. We'd sit and just talk and that type of stuff. Um, about two months after that, I got a, another phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning and said that uh, he ended up passing away because all the continued injuries uh, ultimately was too much. And so that was the very first police funeral that I'd ever been to uh, was the guy that got me into this job. And I can tell you that it probably would have been easier to just pay the man pack his money because from that day on, every day I woke up, even to this day, I realized the, uh, the need to make it great. So when you ask, why did I continue my education? Why did I continue to, to do all these things? Uh, it's with a bigger picture in mind. 
Just want to take a quick break from our show right now and let you know even more about Relentless Defender. Aaron Slater's company is dedicated to showing their support to the men and women in law enforcement by contributing to police charities. Relentless Defender has so far raised $2.2 million that went to police organizations to show their support for the men and women in blue, especially those who have given their lives so that we may live free. Go to RelentlessDefender.com, buy their merchandise, and be part of a great organization supporting the men and women in blue. Now back to Gold Shields. Wow. That's an incredible story. Unbelievable. Um, I don't even know where to start after that, but, you know, Tom and I are blessed as well to have inspirations in people who we looked up to that led us into law enforcement. Um, Tom's dad, he grew up with it, my uncle. And when you respect the person that much and you see what they do, um, what he instilled in you, well, first of all, he made an investment in you and he made an investment that he wanted you to pay forward for the rest of your life and your career. And you're doing that. So you're honoring him every day by the things that you do now and the things you did in your career. Um, and I can think of nothing more that a veteran or retired cop would want more than the, for the profession to continue to attract people whose heart and soul are in it. It's not just a job. It's a calling. It's deeper than that. And you're right about the brotherhood piece. Uh, first time I ever ran to a hospital for somebody who had been shot, things like that. Um, it's an amazing, overwhelming feeling. It's like it really literally is a member of your family that you feel at that moment. And it's a combination of sadness, anger, uh, vengeance. Wow. You know, in our case, you know, Tom and I worked in areas, guys we knew got shot and killed and stuff, and you just want to kick butt for weeks. You want to find who did it and you want to make them pay. It's as though it happened to a member of your you know, natural born family or um, nuclear family, as they call it. Uh, what, what a story, though. And, you know, the things you do at Relentless Defender, you continue, continue to make it great. Thank you for sharing that story, Aaron. Yeah, that's, uh, you know what, Dan and I agree with this, and you will too, Aaron. There's guardian angels in our lives. You know, I firmly believe in that. Uh, St. Michael has a has a role in that, and it may take a while to show itself, to show who that is or the reasons behind it, but in the end, it always does, and I believe he was yours. Uh, he saw something in you and kind of put everything he had in himself into you. Uh, it's a roll of the dice, you know, did he in the back of his mind know you'd be successful? Probably because of just maybe who you are and, and what he saw of you and invested, like Danny said, invested in you and what a payoff, uh, mm-hmm. no matter where he is, Aaron, he's on your shoulder and mm-hmm. he's watching over you and he's proud as hell, mm-hmm. uh, of what you did what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do. Uh, I, I really, really believe that in my heart and we haven't had a story like that on this show, Aaron. So, uh, 
<laughs> we haven't. Uh, and I wasn't expecting that. That was heartfelt. And I see it in your eyes. You know, we don't record the videos. It's an audio show. But, you know, looking at you while we're doing this, you can tell it still hits you. And it still means a lot to you. And you're going to carry that forever and you carry his memory. So God bless you with that. Two things that came to my mind just now uh, listening to that story. The first is one of the things you get to, to be good at as a cop and detective is you get to be a pretty good judge of character. You can size people up fairly quickly and you can see, you know, who's who's lying to you, who's telling the truth, who has goodness in them and who is all about evil. You really do get to meet everybody, so you get to be good at so He saw in you what you didn't see in yourself yet. Uh, he saw in you what others maybe around you didn't see because he had spent that career, that life dedicated towards helping people. And you see people in terms of potential, not just current state, but potential. And the second thing is when he gave you the money, no strings attached to the extent that he didn't want the money back. He made it a gift. He made it an investment. He didn't make it about the money. He was teaching you a lesson about investing in people and investing in yourself. And I think that was uh, one of the most compelling pieces of that story because you still carry with you the obligation in you to make what you do great. And that is something that all people should aspire to. He gave you a tremendous, tremendous gift that day. And um, I think that what you've done with it and what you continue to do with it is is not just an honor to him, but it's a testament to to the fact that you felt that gift in your heart. So, wow. What a story. Wow. So, real quick, to get to the next uh, part of, of this interview, which is uh, very, very important. And just to give everyone, you know, we always have the backstage pass you know, in our show and just real quick, a little backstage pass into the history of us hooking up with Aaron really quick. I had the opportunity uh, and good fortune to be invited to the Blue Lives Matter New York City dinner uh, a few months ago and sat there and listened to a lot of speakers and a lot of awards that were given out. And I'm sitting there and Aaron is presented with an award and Relentless Defender, and he gave a speech. And as soon as he said his name and Relentless Defender was mentioned, I remember, I think it was our third show, we had Dave Bray on. And I think towards the end of the show, Dave emphatically told Danny and I, you have to get with this company. And we said, okay, you know, yep, wrote it down, the whole thing. And it wasn't too long after that, that we had this dinner. And I'm sitting there and you got up and spoke and five minutes into your speech, Aaron, I said, holy crap, I have to get this guy. This is the guy Dave was talking about and the company. And that speech that night with the stories you were telling were incredible. And I think I either left that night and called Danny or called him the next morning and said, okay, we need to figure this out and get, and get you on this show. And, uh, that's kind of just the, the history of, of us getting you on here. So uh, take us through the, the development, the idea, uh, and what has become a super successful organization in Relentless Defender. Again, that's not an easy story as well. But, but, but not, nothing that, uh, that, I've, that, that I have is without obstacle, I can tell you that. The, um, 
So uh, it really kind of uh, goes back to uh, when I got promoted to lieutenant. Um, and I'll answer this because I'll lead to that and kind of explain it. One of the things that um, that I wanted to do as a lieutenant or as a as a commander in my police department, I work for Rosemary Police Department, which is a it's a small agency. It only has about eighty officers. Um, so a lieutenant is essentially like a captain would be in other agencies. Um, we have lieutenants and assistant chief, and then chief. So I was the uh, the patrol commander. So the uh, I took that responsibility extremely, extremely strong. Um, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to become more educated. And part of the education was I went I went and finished up my bachelor's degree. I played around with it like a lot of cops do, and get a few hours here and there. But I went up and finished my my bachelor's degree, and immediately. After finished my bachelor's degree, I wanted to go get my master's degree. I got a scholarship from the Hunter Club, which is a is a uh, organization down here that supports police officers to get scholarships out. I got a scholarship to get my master's degree, and uh, so I did that. And while I was doing that, I also wanted to expand it. And I I got my uh, I went to Leadership Command College here, and I, I did that as well. And uh, so after after. Uh, Getting the education, main reason why I wanted to do that was to one have credibility and two to be a, just a better leader for the people that uh, served under my command. And I realized it's about service. It's not leadership isn't about who serves you. It's about how you serve the people and how you better um, build each each person. So ultimately, I did that for about seven and a half years uh, as a lieutenant. Well, my chief at the time, he was retiring. And the assistant chief, without even pulling punches, was a piece of shit. The, um, and still is to this day. If he walked in, it's like I see him at different functions. I walk up and I just let him know, fuck you, Dallas. Um, so it's one of those things that we've all worked for him. Uh, those types of leaders that are about themselves is about what they get out of, of their careers. And ultimately they've done nothing and they've survived. Um, and it, it was one of those types of deals. Well, my, my chief was retiring and uh, the last thing I wanted was this police department. And I had a great chief at that time. Um, great leader, his empowerment. He, he, he was one of those type of people that if, if he trusted you and you were doing your job, he didn't get in your business. He, he let you run your, your division. And uh, so this, the chief opening it up and I said, you know what? I'm going to put in for it because there's no way I can leave it in the hands of this other guy. Um, and most people would think, you know, you, you promote for selfishness. I think the people that are great leaders promote for selflessness and trying to figure out what they can do for other people. And uh, so I went, I applied for the police chief job. He applied for the police chief job. There was several outside candidates that applied. And, uh, but ultimately it came down to him and I um, for the job itself. And from there, we went through all the process. We went through all kinds of interviews, uh, assessment centers, everything. And it came down to, of course, a city council vote. And the city council 
uh, ended up voting behind closed doors. They voted three to four, and he won by one vote. And uh, but they came out, of course, unanimously and said, "We're we're selecting him." The very next morning, uh, he calls me into his office. Now he's sitting in the chief's office, like he must have stayed there all night. <laughs> and everything. But he calls me in and he says, uh, sit down. So I sit down and he says, uh, you, uh, you realize I'm the police chief now. Like it was a fucking his secret, right? I said, okay. And he goes, you're probably gonna need to find another job. I said, why? <laughs> he says, and you gotta understand down here in Texas, we're at will. We're no, we're not, we don't have unions and those types of things for, especially for smaller agencies. And so we don't have the same protections that a lot of farmers mm-hmm. have. I said, why? He says, why do you, I need the officers loyal to the department, not loyal to a person. I said, see, that's what you understand. Leadership is about loyalty, 360 loyalty. And understand, they're loyal to me because I mentor them. I raised them. I know exactly who their kids are, who their wives are when they started here. I know their history. I know their stories. You can't even walk down the hallway and even know their name. I said, so I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not leaving. You're going to have to fire me if that's the case. And he literally said, okay, you can leave. So I will go to my office. I get to my office, and within 30 minutes, an, an, a uh, department-wide email came out saying that all the sergeants, I had nine sergeants, all the sergeants need to answer directly to him now. Um, I'm rem- All my um, responsibilities was stripped, and I have no more authority that it all goes somewhere else. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it at that time. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, a couple months go by, uh, I was under a total of four investigations in four months, um, IA investigations. And they were like the most outlandish type of shit. And uh, so uh, ultimately, uh, it comes down after four months, I end up getting terminated, uh, fired, uh, and like legitimately like railroaded. So I get fired. I appeal it and I ended up, um, getting my termination overturned. And, but ultimately I said, you know what? I put so much into this job. I put so much effort on, I lived it. It's one of those things where, uh, every breath I took was about service to that job, those people, that community, everything. And when you do that and you get burned like that, the last thing you want to do is do it again. Mm-hmm. So at that moment, I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I said, I'm going to do something that I can build that nobody can take away from me, that I can build that, that, that the only way that I lose it is if I fail. Okay. Because I absolutely didn't fail as a police officer. Um, it was ripped and it was stolen. It was just, that's how it worked. Right. So I said, you know what, I'm going to start a company. Well, uh, while I was at Rosemary Police Department, when I was getting my education, uh, I had learned about the idea of social media and how, how strong social media could be 
to interact with the community um, from a different level that nobody else was really doing it at. Well, I would created our social media page and I wanted to do it a lot differently than every other agency was doing. And we became the most followed law enforcement page in the United States of America, Facebook page. And uh, I was doing interviews with Good Morning America, uh, Time Magazine, all these different big news media outlets about how we were doing it and, and what was different and those types of things. And when I had first done it for the first six months, I was getting calls to my desk from other agencies centers saying, this is bullshit. You shouldn't be doing that. You know, that type of thing. And I came from the narcotic world. Um, I used to call, I used to thought of, I used to think it was called my face. And uh, so I, I stayed off of social media. But then when I realized, you know, that, that, that as police departments, we need to be interacting with the, with the public a lot more. And the idea is, you know, only 0.23% of the nation is comprised of police officers. So 99.77% of the United States is what we're doing. Is, is it, There's no way that we can uh, do this by ourselves. So the idea was to, 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 to build those relationships and, 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 and do those types of positive things so that the community itself can have, you know, input to their own safety. So anyway, I... Uh, First six months, people would call and say, you know, this is bullshit. You shouldn't be doing social media and law enforcement. And uh, and I would just ask simply, well, where do you work? And they tell me, I said, well, you don't work here, so I don't give a shit. Right? And even when I first proposed it to my old chief, the assistant chief, uh, he had made the statement in our administrative meeting, I don't like the, the idea of social media for law enforcement. I said, why? And he goes, well, I just feel like you're walking around naked for the whole world to see. I said, well, AC, let me ask you a question. Yes, yeah, I said, if you look good naked, who the fuck cares? And it was not a very <laughs> good video. <meeting. laughs> but, uh, so when, when, um, oh, and, and, and then about six months after we started doing very well with it, I got, I started getting phone calls from other agencies saying, show us how. To teach us how to do these types of things. So after I got fired, I said, you know, I'm going to start a training company. And the, the, the intent for the training company was to, again, make it great. And uh, uh, really kind of help as much as I possibly could because people were wanting it, uh, wanting that training. So what I did is I started the training company and I started all these social media pages all over I'd started 27 different Facebook pages in every niche you can think of because I thought I would be a broker for trainers and those types of things as well. So I started canine page, everything you could think of within a niche within law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And then um, from there, I uh, I was putting on classes and I put on a class about, and, and by the way, I met my wife on the job as well. And uh, she, she's a cop as well. And when I got fired, over 20 officers from an 80 man department either quit or just decided, you know what, this, this department is not for me, um, which was very strong, but it was also a very big burden feeling on me, but she left and she went to another department as well. And I was putting these training classes on and ultimately I, uh, was, was making very little money. Okay, I was making maybe five thousand dollars a month, but after expenses and everything, maybe two grand a month. 
but it was wanted and, and, and it kept growing a little bit. My wife, she was working, you know, her job and full and, and, and uh, working extra jobs. I was trying to make ends meet by just filling out the police academy, teaching at the police academy. Uh, I had a job offer for an assistant chief at a job. I had an interim police chief job that was offered in some small little podunk city, and I turned them down because I didn't want to do it again. I didn't want to get it ripped from you again. January 10th of 2015, my wife walks in, and she's got a paper in her hand, and she says, did you know about this? And it was our property taxes. And we owed $6,566 in property tax. And I had zero money. We were living off credit cards. We were doing everything we possibly can just to survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, yeah, I know about it. And she goes, well, we need the money. And I said, I know. And she says, well, why don't you just go back to law enforcement? That's what you're good at, right? I said, you don't understand. I'm trying to build something here, something uh, that's that's greater than just the idea of what I was doing. So it gets, gets ripped away from me, right? And she goes, well, it's not working, okay? So I literally stopped, and, and, and of course, when you argue about finances in a relationship, there's no winning on either side. It's just, it's just a horrible argument. So I went to th- th- that night, uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't a regular uh, prayer or, or, or very religious um, at that moment. But I just stopped and I just said a prayer and I said, God, I don't know what you want me to do. I thought that what I was doing in law enforcement was the right thing. I thought I was owning up to the, the selflessness that I was supposed to be doing. But if you want me to continue to do the training show me a path for it to, to, to work. If you want me to go back to law enforcement, show me a path and I'll go do that. I said, but I just, I, I give up. I give up trying to force this because it's not working and, and just show me what you want from me. The next day I got up and I went to my office in my house and I had learned how to do graphic art from doing the, my own marketing and that type of stuff on social media for the training class. Cause I had done that for about six months, by the way. And I designed this one design and it was, I took a helmet, I put a blue line through it. Okay. And I said, you know, that's a pretty cool design. So I put it up and my wife and I were supposed to go to a birthday party that night. So I put it up on what they call Teespring, which is like a, uh, a t-shirt selling company, almost think about it as an Amazon fulfillment company. And I put it up on that and I shared it out to all my pages, right? All 27 different pages and then put it out. And then we went to the party, come back about two hours later after the dinner. And, uh, we, we weren't talking because the argument still ensued. And I, I go to my office and I said, I wonder if I sold any shirts and I pull it up and sure enough, had already sold over 200 shirts in two hours. I said, what the fuck? Wow. So I started looking at it. I'm trying to figure out, okay, what did I do wrong? Did I put the price in wrong? What did, you know, what did, but no, the comments were <laughs> awesome. Just bought, you know, just bought two. This is, and sure enough, um, it was working. Right. So I let it run for seven days. Cause that's how the long campaigns run. And at the end of the seven days, 
uh, I walk into uh, my master bathroom where, where my wife was at, and she was curling her hair or straightening whichever one. And uh, she, I said, hey, babe, we have money for the taxes. And I remember the look that she gave because she stopped doing what she was doing, and she put it down, and she turned to look at me. And remember at the beginning of this podcast, I said I worked undercover narcotics. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the first reaction that she gave was like, what the fuck are you doing? Because there's nobody in the right idea could sit there and think, uh, how do you raise that much money in seven days? Legally. Legally. That's right. <laughs> so I said, God damn. I said, let me show you. So I take her over there. I show her the computer. I'm showing her all this stuff. And she was a detective. And she goes, is this some kind of pyramid scheme or something? Because, you know, we always revert to the negatives, right? right. This is the cop way. And I said, no, I'm selling T-shirts. And she goes, well, I'll believe it when the money hits the bank account. I said, it's already drafted. It's already in the bank account, right? So she still was confused. I can tell you that I made $6,568 in seven days, $2 more than I needed for my taxes. And I literally didn't know what to think of it at then, so I, I just tried to figure out what is this about. So the message I took from that was God's going to provide. God's going to provide. He's even going to give you a little bit more than you need. But it goes back to the understanding of how I got in this business to begin with and the promise that I made. And that is, do something great with the rest of it. With that being said, our mission and my mission with this company from the day that it launched with that understanding of things is that this isn't about selling clothes. This isn't about selling t-shirts. This isn't about apparel. None of this is. It's about using the sales of that to fuel things that we can do in a bigger picture to make it great like I made a promise to. And that's the reason why our, our, our motto is wear with purpose, because the, the messages on the shirts, there's a purpose behind the message. But then it's an inclusive brand, meaning mm-hmm. you wear, you wear, you wear, and we all wear it with a purpose. And that purpose, you know, can be different for many people in different times, but it's not just the idea of let's put some stuff on and sell it you know, to make a profit. I had no idea about anything about the apparel company or apparel business or running a business in that aspect. It's just the path that was given and and was said, go on this path and I will show you the rest. Our successes, I've been in business almost nine years now. It is a multi-million dollar company. And I can tell you, coming from a police officer that had no education in entrepreneurship, no education in business, no education in the t-shirt world or the apparel world. Uh, there are many things that I can honestly say, I have no idea how we got here. Um, and that's honestly the truth. About 50% of it is just God's will. And God's power. Mm-hmm. The other 50% is the idea that I wake up and get to work before everybody else. And I leave after everybody else. Because I think that God gives you a path, 
but you better work your ass off to, 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 to continue it. And that has been the absolute mission of this company since the day we started it. Uh, to date, uh, I'm proud to say we just passed the $2.2 million mark for donating to, to nonprofits. Um, I, I, I am honored to sit on the board for the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund um, in Washington, D.C., my uh, my wife and my sister in law they sit on the local chapter of Concerned Police Survivors Board um, because their father passed uh, in the line of duty uh, two years ago, um, and uh, so it it this business isn't I, our tagline used to be not just another apparel company and that is absolutely the truth and the mm-hmm. day that we as a company, as, as the people that work, you know, within my company, my team, the minute that we lose sight of that, uh, is the day I'm going to shut my doors. The, uh, it is a purpose driven company. It's a purpose driven brand. And it always will be because just like I explained and, and, and you reminded me, my job is to pay that back. My job is to pay it back. That's something that happened almost 30 years ago. And, uh, and I will continue to do that uh, through this company. That's uh, an incredible journey. I mean, I'm not even going to say story because it's a journey. And you look back on your life, okay? Let, let, let's look at it real quick. Nothing happens, okay, with what's going on now with Relentless Defender, with your success, with the career you had, if you don't take that drive that day to your mom's, none of this happens. One leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And if you don't take that ride that day or go back around the block, none of this happens. And that's my my statement before about a path and a guardian angel and all that. It takes a while sometimes for it to totally lay itself out, but when it does it's like a brick hitting you in the head, you know, of, of how much things lead to something else that lead to a successful life that you have now. Uh, wow. I, it, it's hard to, it's hard to put in any more words into this Aaron because of the stories you've told and what you've become and what you've made and not easy. You know, there's, there's companies out there that kind of get it laid out for them and, okay, cool, we'll do this, we'll do this, and, and they get it done. You had to fight to the point of a bill being due, you know, and, and didn't give up and didn't stop and came up with something else. And it's just you as a man. Uh, and I'm, you know, in no uncertain words, honored to know you and and to be, you know, associated with you and Relentless Defender. And we couldn't be more proud to be aligned with you even more after hearing this interview. Uh, you're, you're some kind of guy. And, and, and I don't say that lightly. And I don't say it just because you're here and because you did our show. You listen to you talk and it's the same feeling I had at the Blue Lives Matter dinner. Same feeling I have for you and your company and what you do. Uh, so thank you for what you do for, and I'm saying thank you for all the members of law enforcement that you've helped that has taken 
a dollar or two or, or $10 or $20 into something that they need because of what you do and your company does. And you can sleep sleep good at night knowing that that you're making an impact in people's lives, in law enforcement members' lives who are hurt, who are injured, and being on the boards of company uh, organizations that you're on and your, your family with continuing support of law enforcement with, with concerns of police officers and, and the National Law Enforcement uh, Week. It, it's just, you keep going, man. Do you stop? <laughs> I mean, do you have a, wow, okay, I need I need a break for, for a couple of days. It, it doesn't seem that you have a stop button. I don't. And, and, uh, and the reason why is because I have an internal drive that is more than a physical drive. And, and so, you know, there's a purpose behind everything that I do. There's a reason why I, I, I I just don't, uh, the, 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 uh, I will tell you that, that even I have some health issues, but I can tell you that that that'll never, I will have to be, um, incapable before, uh, I quit. Wow. Listen, me and you, Danny, could, could probably sit on this podcast and this show for about four hours <laughs> and just talk. Uh, but I know we have, both of us have a big week weekend coming up and you're going to be getting on the road very soon. And you, you took the time before you get going to do our show, which uh, I cannot thank you enough. We haven't had a show like this. We haven't had an interview like this with, with such a heartfelt story of success of of being kind of at that end and at that bottom of the barrel type of story and then rising to the level that you are now and we haven't had someone like you on the show and and we're so thankful and so grateful for the time that you took before you get going on the road down to dc uh as well as danny and i will be doing uh taking the time to do this for us and letting everyone know the man you are, the company that you run, and why you run it, and uh, having that focus. So thank you so much, Aaron, for what you've given us on the show and your time. Well, thank you very, very much, and I appreciate everything you guys are doing, the, uh, especially in this time in this world that we're living in right now. The, the stories of law enforcement need to be told. And, mm-hmm. and they need to be told very candidly like you guys are doing it. So I appreciate it. Uh, I, I wish you guys nothing but grace and goodwill and, and, and nothing but success to get your messages out for all the people that are that you're bringing on the show because you're, you guys are doing amazing. Thank you very, very much for that. That means, you know, just like us as cops, you know, it means it means more to us when we used to drive around in a radio car for a little kid to wave at you sure. than get a medal, you know, or be in a store and someone say thank you is better than a plaque or an award. And something like that, you know, you what you just said coming from you to Dan and I means a lot. Uh, thank you very, very much for that. And we will be seeing each other in a couple of days. Down in DC uh, for Police Week and the events that are going on down there, and we couldn't be uh, more excited about that. Uh, but once again, thank you again, 
And just to end the show on on a note that we always do, and Aaron will certainly echo this, uh, pray for all law enforcement members out there in this world. They do a job that 99% of this country is, as Aaron stated, won't do. And every cop out there does it voluntarily. No one gets forced into this job. They do it because they love the job and they love helping and they love assisting others and seeing uh, the results of that. So like I say all the time, a wave, a pat on the back in a store means the world to guys and and women out there. Uh, So just make sure you keep them in your prayers. And for uh, Dan Murphy and Aaron Slater, this is Tom Smith again, telling everyone out there, please stay safe. And we will be sending you some messages and and, uh, posts from Washington, D.C. this weekend. So look out for those on, on our social media platforms. And everyone out there, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. 